Thank you so much, my friends. It's uh, good to be with you tonight and to share from God's Word. If you have a Bible or if you want to browse to it on your gizmo, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading at verse 10. If you're using the church Bible, it's page 1080. At least it was when I last looked. Sorry? It's 1180. 1180. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's good for the humility. We'll come on. <laughs> Here we go. Verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, don't worry. That too, God will make clear to you. Twenty twenty vision. It's a phrase that we use to describe somebody's eyesight, and I hope it's not too too hackneyed a title for tonight. But I really couldn't get away with anything else, since not only are we starting a new year, but we're starting a new decade. I know of a man who, if he wants to take a conversation beyond the superficial will ask three diagnostic questions. He'll ask, what makes you laugh? What makes you cry? And what makes you dance? And I can't help thinking that if I was talking to him and he asked me those three questions, I would in fact give the same answer to all three of them. What makes me laugh? The church does. Quite frankly, some of the things that go on in the church just crack me up. <laughs> some of you will know that until recently I was pastor of a church in Eastbourne. And a few years ago, April the 1st happened to fall on a Sunday. So I considered it my moral obligation to play a prank on the congregation. And it was my turn that day to do the uh, announcements. And so, amongst two or three other things that we were highlighting from the news sheet that week, uh, I, I said, well, look, you know, we, we support BMS World Mission... And they're just starting up a project in India to help tea plantation workers. And the idea is this, of course, when, when they pick tea, they remove the leaves from the plants, and therefore there's very little left to provide fertilizer for the next generation of plants. So um, what, this, what the company in uh, Southampton is going to do in conjunction with BMS World Mission is we're going to take 
uh, the tea that we use, turn it back into fertilizer and ship it out to these tea plantation workers in India. So please, if you wouldn't mind, could you dry out your tea bags this week and bring them into the church? And by the way, there's a prayer meeting on Wednesday and the notes for the small groups in the news sheet, blah de blah blah Guys, I was inundated with tea bags. <laughs> they came in bags, they came in boxes. I even had a phone call from a lady in the church who said to me, Ian, she said, I work in a care home. I manage this care home. We drink a lot of tea and I have asked our chef to put aside all of the tea bags, dry them out for you so that we can help this project in India. I've not only done that, I've been in touch with the manager for the whole chain of care homes and we're all going to do it. <laughs> And I said, um, did you notice what the date was on Sunday? <laughs> and her response was not repeatable. Um, <laughs> what makes me laugh? The church does. What makes me cry? The church does. When one Sunday two women came to worship with us at my church in Eastbourne, and one gent in the church decided that he didn't like them, got into conversation with them, started arguing, told them they were an abomination and sent them out of the church. Thankfully, an, elder, an, an older lady in the church overheard this altercation and came to tell me about it afterwards. I wept that day because two people who wanted to come and worship God had been thrown out by someone who thought he knew better than God. To their credit, they came to see me later in the week to tell me about this. And I was able to say to them, look, so far as I'm concerned, you are welcome to worship in our church. But I have to say, they never returned. What makes me cry? The church does. What makes me dance? The church does. There are some moments in Christian ministry that have caused my heart to dance with unbridled joy. Let me just tell you about one of them. My friends, I am spoilt for choice. One Sunday morning, the church was full and four people arrived together. And they had to do what, we, what became known as the walk of shame because the church was full and the only seats left were right in the very front row. So, so they walked right down the aisle and the, the steward showed them to these four seats in the front and it suddenly struck me what had happened in these four lives. Two married couples. All four of them, over the past, sort of, I think, two, three years, had encountered someone in the church. They'd been invited on Alpha. They'd come to faith. We baptised them and all four of them were now church members and were going on with God. And to see all four of them sitting together in the front row, knowing that that was the history for all of them, that made my heart just dance with joy. God does wonderful stuff in the church. That's why he designed it the way it is. What makes my heart dance? The church does. Let me give you just one other example. Uh, this is Lucy Pepiat. Now, Lucy is the principal of the Westminster Theological Centre. And uh, she posted this picture uh, yesterday on, on Facebook. Oh, got two pictures of her. Oh, well, that one. And with it, she said this. 
I've just come back from the gym. A decade ago today, I was too ill and in too much pain to go to the gym. I hadn't finished my PhD. I was looking forward to teaching just one module at the Westminster Theological Centre later that year. I hadn't written a book. I hadn't studied 1 Corinthians. That's her speciality. I had absolutely no idea what lay ahead. I am so, so grateful for all the help to finish my PhD, help to get well, help to write, help to grow in confidence, help to research, help to teach, and help to run a college. It has been an absolutely crazy 10 years, mostly thanks to God, of course, who knows me way better than I know myself. I'm glad I don't know what is coming in the next decade. But if I'd known that the last decade, I would never have believed it. And what made the difference? The church did. People around her, people who helped her, people who spurred her on, people who wept with her, who walked with her, who worked with her. What makes my heart dance with joy? The church does when that kind of thing happens. My friends, we're facing not just a new year, but a new decade. And none of us knows what that decade is going to contain. Only the, the, the foolhardy would dare to predict what's going to happen in these next 10 years. Although we may well be concerned about the extent to which men and women with very little moral compass appear to have uh, got themselves ensconced in positions of significant leadership across the world. I would be a fool to try and predict what's going to happen this year, let alone in 10. But I'm going to have a go. Because I think at the end of this decade, there will be certain things that I can almost guarantee will be true. And the first is that this group of people will never meet again. We will not be able to meet in 10 years' time. Because some of us will have got a new job. Some of us will have moved away. Some of us will be married. Some of us who are married now may not be. Some of us will go in leaps and bounds in our faith. Others of us will drift. Some of us will be in glory. And Paul has a lot to tell us in these verses about how we face an uncertain future. Not just the medium term of a year, but the longer term of a decade. And what I want to do tonight is to take these verses and pick out one or two, a few key attributes or attitudes that Paul focuses on. In fact, each of them is significant enough for Paul to mention them twice. So if you have your Bible, you might like to follow. And the first one is, is the attitude of humility. Hum humility can lay the foundation of a healthy spiritual life for the next decade. And Paul mentions this twice. He mentions it in verse 12 and in verse 13. In verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. And then in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. 
It seems as if Paul conducted himself with a, a sober assessment of who he was before God and before others. And when you think about it, if anyone had ample cause to boast about his achievements, then Paul had. He could boast about his contacts. He could go name-dropping. And he does this earlier in the chapter. In fact, if you look at verse 4, you see he, he highlights some of the things that his audience might regard as, wow, if you've managed that, Paul, you've really got there. But he says, I regard all of these things as rubbish, mere fluff, that I might gain Christ. I love the old King James version of this in verse 8. It's not, to, it's not rubbish or fluff, it's dung. <laughs> this is a load of dung. These are cowpats compared with knowing Christ. Verse 3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. See, humility is a, is a strange thing. Because as soon as we think we've licked it, we've lost it. St. Augustine, he, he said this, Do you wish to rise, then begin by descending. Do you plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Then first lay the foundation of humility. And that was Paul. Although he had every right to boast, he didn't do it. And that's an attitude that personally I want to take into this next decade. You see, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. As long as we are proud, we cannot know God. Because a, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see who's above you. I have a, a preacher friend who whenever he preaches on a platform like this, will always subsequently find an act of hidden humility to perform. He does it to prevent himself from having a, an over-inflated sense of his own importance. He may be washing up the team's coffee mugs, or cleaning a mucky loo, or picking up some litter around the front of the church. And yes, you might say all these things should be done by other people and nine times out of ten they are. But he was all too aware that pride and self-importance are temptations for people who preach. And he hoped that, that this small discipline would help to keep his heart where it should be. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, said Peter, and in due time, he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, said Paul here, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I haven't arrived. 
I'm still a work in progress. So if humility is one of the attributes that I want to take into the next decade, then I also see here another one, and that's determination. And again, Paul sees this as significant enough to mention it twice. You'll see it both in verse 12 and in verse 13. In verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And in verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, it's an athletic image he's using here, I press on toward the goal. Paul was determined to press on. And let's face it, if anyone had good reason to give up or to bemoan his lot, Paul did. At this point, he was in prison and the future looked very bleak. Actually, I, I'm often amazed by the tone of this letter to Philippians. Because I don't know about you, but if I'd been in Paul's shoes, I think I'd have written a very different letter. I think I'd be saying, oh, please pray for me. Oh, life is tough. Life is awful. I need your help. But no, no. In Philippians, we find one of the most positive and uplifting books in the New Testament. In fact, I have a friend uh, in South London, and one of the things that, uh, that, that caused him to come to faith was reading this book. He went on a business conference, and somebody, uh, nothing to do with the church at all, uh, somebody who was uh, leading it said, one of the really helpful things you can do is read literature that has a, a positive mindset behind it. He said, and you can do worse than read the book of Philippians in the Bible. Well, this surprised my friend. So he went home and he read the book of Philippians and that was the first step in his journey to faith. I press on, said Paul, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Well, what was that exactly? Well, when we think about Paul, we can kind of come to some sort of an answer because Christ Jesus took hold of Saul of Tarsus and transformed him into the man God wanted him to be. Don't forget, this man, Paul, we have known Paul now, originally called Saul, he was a murderous persecutor of Christians. And he struck fear into the Christian church in the first century. But God was at work in him. And while we know there was a, a, a key moment on the road to Damascus when this man's life was turned around, that was far from the only thing that God was doing in his life. And if we look through the scriptures, we can find other occasions where Paul was present and God may well have impacted that man's life and prepared the way so that that key moment on the Damascus road was one that, that marked the radical change. God took hold of Saul of Tarsus and transformed him into the man that he had been created to be. My friend, as we press on in Christ, God can take hold of you and transform you into the man or the woman that he made you to be. Because we, we are all image bearers of God. God's stamp exists in each of us. If we allow God to work in our lives, he will bit by bit transform us to be more like his son. Now, I have no idea 
what this year or this decade might hold for you, except this. Your heavenly father wants you to be more like his son. And he is on your side in the task of seeing that transformation take place. And Paul reminds us, as if we needed it, that this process requires some determination because determination doesn't happen naturally. At least it doesn't for me. I mean, you know, you may be a paragon of virtue for whom it does. I, I, it doesn't happen naturally for me at all. And here's the thing about determination. It doesn't just sort of appear when we need it. It is usually the result of real spiritual and emotional heavy lifting work. It's the result of being determined in the little things of life so that when the big things come down the track, we know what determination looks like and feels like and we need not be afraid of it anymore. I think determination lies at the balance between fear and bravery. If we live without fear, we do stupid things. But if we live without bravery or courage, we never step out into the unknown. And the balance of these two is where trust in God is found. And where, where grown-up, God-honouring determination can flourish. Because we, we, we have a very determined God. I, I love one of the passages that we often read about Christmas where, where it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God is keen on it. He actually wants it to happen and he's going to see to it that it does. Humility and determination are keys to becoming more like Jesus. I read uh, a fascinating book a few years ago now by a man called Jim Collins. It's a business book. It's nothing to do with theology at all. Uh, it's called Good to Great. Maybe some of you have heard of it. And I got in touch, I've encountered this book first because I heard him interviewed, I think it was him or someone like him, was interviewed talking about this book. And he has a chapter in there on leadership. And he said on the radio, do you know, these leadership qualities that we identified, they look an awful lot like Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, I might buy that book and have a read of it. So I did. And he'd done a lot of uh, empirical research about leadership and so forth. And he, he admits in the, at the end of his first chapter, which is all about leadership, that he never expected to discover two things about leadership. He thought leadership is all going to be about forceful personalities, about being an extrovert, about driving your way through a situation. But he said the greatest leaders that we encountered carried two qualities and they were humili hum humility and determination. Isn't that interesting? That they are key qualities of great leaders. Well, there's a third one that I see here. And that's where our title comes from for, for tonight. It's the whole concept of vision and looking forward to a future and setting our course to realise that future. Look at verse 13. Again, Paul feels it significant enough to mention it twice. Verse 13, I'm straining towards what is ahead. And verse 14, I press on to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Normal 
eyesight is called 2020 vision. Now, I thought in my naivety, you probably know better than I do, but I thought in my naivety that 2020 vision was absolutely stun stunning vision. You know, somebody who could read the small print of the Encyclopedia Britannica at 100 meters. Uh, but no, 2020 vision is normal eyesight. And uh, it's where the green line is on that chart. If you've ever had to um, go to an optician and use one of these charts, you know about the 11-year-old boy who memorized the copyright statement on the bottom of the chart. And when the, when the optician said, can you read the bottom line? He said, yes, copyright, and, um, and rattled it off. <laughs> now, 2020 vision is normal. It's between, between the, the red and the green lines, I think, is the, 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 sorry, the, the, the text above the red line is where 2020 lies. And so it got me asking, Lord, what is normal for me? I'm not looking to be exceptional. I'm not looking to be, uh, you know, one of the people that everybody admires. I just want to live normally for you. I want to know what your vision is, what you want me to do, so that I can just set my course and do it. 2020 vision is normal vision. If you read the, the read it, if you want to know where 2020 comes from, it's to do with having that chart at 20 feet away and reading text that is one twentieth of an inch. Sorry, it's all in imperial units. I could convert it to metric, but it doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> it's what we see that matters. Lord, where do you want me to be and what do you want me to be doing in this next year or this next decade? I, I did make a New Year's resolution this year, and so far I have stuck to it. My New Year's resolution was not to make any more New Year's resolutions. In part because when I've done it, it so often leads to disappointment and failure. But if I was to say, or if you were to say, Lord, where do you want me to be at the end of the year? Then we can set a course. Then we can start tracking things. And then we can say, Lord, I want you to keep me on track. Help me to be humble about this and determined about it. Lord, I want to see your vision for this coming year. And then bring it into reality. You and I together, along with the help of my friends in the church, let me tell you a story about two men in hospital. Jim's bed was by the window and Eric was next to him. Eric's back injury meant that he couldn't sit up. He had to lie down flat for some considerable length of time. And the two men began talking to each other. And when Eric felt low, Jim would describe what he could see out of the window because he could sit up. Outside, he saw a beautiful park. Squirrels would scurry between the trees and the trees were, were loaded with blossom which fell like snow in the wind. There were a couple who turned up every day and sat on a bench. They would just sit and they would talk. He looked intently at her face and couldn't stop smiling from the moment he sat down. In the hospital, Jim's condition worsened 
And even when he was deeply sick, he would still get the nurses to prop him up so that he could see out of the window and describe to Eric everything that was going on. One day, the couple met, as usual, in the park. But this time, something was different. After a few minutes, the, the man stood up as if to walk away, but stopped suddenly and turned around and took a small object out of his pocket. And with that, he went down on one knee. She took the ring and the hug lasted as if forever. The following day, Jim did not wake up. And try as they might, the staff could not revive him. And after his body had been wheeled out of the ward, a nurse came to comfort Eric. Eric, she said, you've become good friends with Jim, haven't you? Yeah, he said, I, I am so going to miss him. She said, look, I know it sounds trite, but if there's anything I can do, you must let me know. And Eric said, you know, actually there is. Can, can you organise it so that I can, my bed can be in the place where, where Jim was? And now that I'm a bit better, can you prop me up so I can look out of that park and see everything that he saw? Of course, she said. And later in the day, the switch was made. And Eric took his first look out of the window, which had brought him such joy and such hope. And to his utter astonishment, there was no park, no trees, no lovers, just a brick wall. You see, it's the way we look at things that matters. It's the way we say to the Lord, Lord, I want you to lead me step by step through this year and through this decade. It's seeing our Heavenly Father in pleasure as well as in pain. It's seeing God in the triumphs as well as in the tragedies. It's seeing him in the marathon. It's seeing him in the sprint. You see, God's normal for our vision is seeing him in all the things that come down the track and being sensitive to that <coughs> whisper, as I put it like this, that when you, when, you're tempted, when you divert to the right hand or the left, you will hear a voice from behind you saying, buddy, this is the way. Walk in it. And what Paul is doing here is he's looking at life through a lens that has God in the focus all the time. None of us know what this next decade will bring for us. But we have a God who wants to walk with us at every single step. Can I encourage you in these next few moments, we're going to stop, we're going to pause and pray, just to say to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to be in this next year or in this next decade? What's your normal, what's your vision for normality for me? And I will be humble about realizing it and determined to make it happen. 
And maybe that will be the first step in helping you to become more like Jesus Christ in the years that start from tonight. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have heard the longings of our souls, the thoughts of our minds and the desires of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from you. Take us, we pray, and transform us to be more like your Son. And we'll be careful to give him all the glory. Amen.